Um, good morning. How are you all doing? Good. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Callum, part of the leadership team here at Gateway. And uh, this morning, we are just taking uh, one week to do something a little bit different before we hit Christmas season uh, full time. Um, and that is kind of part preach, um, part explaining some of what we believe, part family admin, I suppose. And we're going to talk a little bit about baptism this morning. Um, now, you'll notice we're not actually baptizing anybody. Um, so I'm not going to spend the whole time unpacking what is going on. I'm just going to touch on it briefly. Uh, instead, I'm going to spend some of my time um, talking a little bit about that, but also about what we believe as elders that we should be looking for in those who are getting baptized. And then also just hopefully clarify some of our process in that. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to recognize that for a number of people who'd expressed interest in baptism over the last few months, it's probably been a slightly frustrating um, period. We had originally planned a baptism service for the 5th of November, um, which you'll remember we postponed. And that was partly postponed because there were quite a number of people who uh, expressed interest quite close to the date, and we just um, simply didn't feel we had time as a team to have all the conversations we needed to have. Um, but it was also partly postponed because there were a number of questions that we had around different situations, and we just wanted to honour the individuals involved and kind of sort out our own mess and confusion before um, we baptised anybody else. So I just wanted to take a moment right at the start just to apologise um, publicly. Um, you know, we've already had conversations with individuals um, who'd expressed baptism, but, um, you know where we have miscommunicated, where we have not been at our best, where we have caused frustration or hurt, even when it's unwillingly, we still want to take the moment to just humbly apologize and ask for forgiveness. Um, and for those of you who weren't hurt in the moment, it's a good reminder that we're all as incompetent as the next person. Um, so, however, in all of that kind of slight messiness of the last uh, month or two, um, I realise not messiness for everybody, but it's been quite helpful for us as a team, actually, just in uh, answering some of those questions, checking some of our foundations, sorting out some of our messiness, thinking about things around baptism that we've not had to give too much thought to before. And so this morning, I'm just going to take a, a little bit of time to unpack where we've landed uh, using four Bs, because alliteration is always helpful. Um, before I finish, as I said, just by explaining a little bit of what our process is going to be so that we have clarity as a church family moving forwards. And the first B, as you may have guessed, is baptism. Um, why do we do it and what does it do? So if you have a Bible, can I ask you to turn to Matthew 28? We're going to start in verse 18. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them, to his disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." So if that passage doesn't make it clear already, 
The main reason we baptize people is simply because Jesus tells us to. Okay, go and make disciples, he says. How? By baptizing them and by teaching them. How long are we supposed to do it for? Until the very end of the age. And not only does Jesus instruct us to baptize new believers and to teach them, but he was also baptized himself, which you can read about in Matthew 3. And many folks have suggested over the past few uh, decades that a better English word for disciple might be apprentice. Because disciple is not a word that, we're, that we often use in kind of modern day uh, speech, um, we, we're not always clear on what it means. But most of us do know what an apprentice is. An apprentice is a learner, an imitator. So it might help our understanding of what a disciple is and the relationship between a disciple and a rabbi if we think of it in terms of an apprentice and the relationship between an apprentice and a master. The apprentice spends time with the master, watches them, learns from them, imitates them, and in time, with practice, eventually becomes like them. And you might have heard um, this kind of phrasing before, but a disciple or apprentice of Jesus is somebody who spends time with Jesus, becomes like him, and does the things that he did. And so if Jesus, our master, our rabbi was baptized, then we, his disciples, his apprentices, want to imitate him and do the things that he did. So very simply, right, that's why. That's why we baptize people. That's why we believe we should get baptized as followers of Jesus. But what does baptism actually do? So again, flick over in your Bibles a few pages to Romans 6, starting in verse 3 which says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And I think this short passage gives us two of the most fundamental pictures of baptism in the New Testament. The first of which is death, burial, and resurrection. As we are immersed into the water, which is what the uh, Greek word for baptism normally means, right? Immersed, plunged, dipped, submerged. As we are immersed into the water, we are buried with Christ into his death. And as we are lifted up from the water, we are raised with Christ into resurrection life. Okay, so that's the first image we have from this short passage. And the second one is simply participation or union with Jesus, right? We are buried with him. We die with him. We are raised with him. We are united with him in his death and his burial. And we are united with him in his resurrection. But there is... um, much more in the New Testament that baptism uh, is linked to. I'm going to do one of those slides where I just list a whole bunch of things. I'm not expecting anybody to remember any of them. Um, But just so you know the kind of imagery that's in the Bible, in the New Testament around baptism. So the two... Oh, it's small as well. Oh, it's not so small up there. That's fine. Um, So the two we've mentioned. So baptised 
Uh, that word in, in Matthew 28, by the way, can also be translated as into. So not only are we baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, but we are also baptizing people into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And then, as we just said, Romans 6, union and participation with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. But it's also linked to the washing or the forgiveness of sin, to receiving the Holy Spirit, to justification, sanctification, to new birth and the kingdom of God, to joining the spirit-filled body of Jesus, to being clothed with Christ, to regeneration, to salvation, and to becoming members of one another. And that's just picking some of the more obvious examples, right? Some of the less obvious ones might be linked to the waters of creation or the rivers in the Garden of Eden or the Exodus story as Israel is freed from slavery to Egypt through the Red Sea, is rescued from her enemies and so on. All of these images and stories of the Bible around baptism kind of act like little tiles that together form a mosaic that helps us understand what baptism is and what it does. And uh, Peter Lightheart, who is a uh, biblical scholar, he says that the Bible never portrays baptism as a picture of some more important event that happens without it. Right? He says baptism works, it does something. And this is a slightly longer quote, this next one, so you have to bear with me. Um, but Andrew Wilson, who is a teaching pastor in a church in London, a New Frontiers Church in London, he says in his book... Uh, from the first day of the church, quite literally, the apostles insisted that Christianity required baptism, not just as a demonstration that a person had become a disciple, let alone as the sort of thing that Christians really ought to get around to at some point, but as part of the process of Christian initiation. And they went on to argue that baptism was how we put on Christ, are buried with Christ, raised with him, washed and saved. And modern evangelicals, people like us, he means, uh, nervous that these texts might imply salvation by works, hurry to explain that none of this means baptism actually does anything. It's just a symbol of what God has done inwardly. But he says that the apostles, on the other hand, were not quite so squeamish. As Paul puts it in Galatians, you are the children of God through faith for or because you have put on Christ in baptism. The latter thing, you have put on Christ in baptism, does not contradict the former, that you are children of God through faith, but rather provides the very reason for it. And he finishes, I love this line, when we celebrate the sacraments, by which he means baptism and communion, we do things that do things. You tracking with me? Um, you might not agree with it, I suppose, but um, <laughs> hopefully I'm making sense. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that baptism, just like communion, is not an empty symbol which has no power. Right? We do things when we celebrate them. We do things that do things. Okay? It's why we believe that baptism is essential for followers of Jesus. It's why we share communion every single week, if we can, because we believe the Spirit is mysteriously at work in and through them in power. So if that's what baptism is and does, what is it that we believe we're supposed to be looking for in those who are wanting to get baptized? 
which leads me to my second B, which is belief. Hopefully this doesn't come as too much as a surprise uh, to many of you here, but we believe that one of the foundational things the Bible says we should be looking for in those wanting to get baptised is belief or faith, right? You might know that verse we've often used on uh, baptism services previously, Romans uh, 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we believe that the clear teaching of the Bible is that only those who profess faith in Jesus should be baptized. Right? Baptism is for believers. And this is part, obviously, of the reason that we don't baptize infants here at Gateway. Babies are incapable of making a profession of faith. So if you have been baptized as an infant, but not as an adult or a child who's capable of making that profession of faith, can I ask you just to, um, just to read the scriptures in your own time and come and speak to us? We would love to talk to you about how we came to that conclusion and therefore why we think you should be baptized. And look, it's, it's our firm conviction that this is what the Bible teaches, but we're also aware that there are many brothers and sisters around the world who have read the same scriptures and faithfully come to a different conclusion. And that's okay. Right? We are not going to guilt trip anybody into doing something that their conscience isn't comfortable with. We're not going to force anybody to get baptized who believes that their baptism as a baby is valid. We believe that we've read the scriptures correctly, of course. Uh, <laughs> but we also have the humility, I hope, to, putting it bluntly, recognize that we could be wrong. Um, and so we will gladly welcome those who have been baptized as infants to belong here in our church family. We will not exclude individuals who've been baptized who disagree with our position on baptism from membership, from community life here at Gateway, from belonging here. It probably means we're not going to ask you to preach on baptism. Um, and, <laughs> and clearly there are some leadership roles, such as eldership, where we need to have some kind of agreement. Um, but again, to be clear, while we firmly and strongly believe this, and we will continue to teach this and to pray that God would lead you to make a decision in line with that, we will not exclude you from belonging here at Gateway, even if you disagree with us. Um, and I can't, speak for the, I can't speak for the other elders, but um, I personally would go so far as to say that um, I think it's the best unhealthy and at worst, a betrayal of the desire of Jesus as expressed in his prayer for unity in John 17 for a church to exclude somebody from Christ's body, from his family, from his people, based on a difference of opinion that is reached by faithfully reading the Bible. Um, okay, so we've touched on what baptism is and why we do it. That was the first B. And then very simply, this, the first thing that we're looking for in those wanting to get baptized is belief, right? An understanding of the gospel, a clear and credible profession of faith, if you like. And the next thing we believe we should be looking for in those wanting to get baptized is belonging. Now, the New Testament is clear that we are baptized into Christ, into his body, right? Matthew 28, as I said, that can be translated, uh, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, um, 1 Corinthians 12, Galatians, you can look these up if you want to, Galatians 3, Acts 2 is a good example where it talks about how those who received Peter's words um, were baptized and added into the church. 
lost my place. There we go. And every single metaphor for the church in the Bible is embodied in the local church. Okay, those metaphors work themselves out in particular places. They get put into practice locally. And the same is true of baptism. Okay, baptism is, if you like, the entry point to the church, to Christ's universal body throughout all of time and history and space. But Christ's universal body is present in his local church. The church cannot exist just in your head or in some kind of ethereal theological sense. It exists in the reality of local gatherings of followers of Jesus all around the world. And so if to be united uh, with, in Christ by faith through baptism is to be united to the universal body of Christ, and if the universal body of Christ is embodied in the local church, then to be baptized is also to be baptized into the local church. John Piper um, says, baptism is not some kind of fun climax to beach evangelism where everybody then goes their separate ways with no reference to church. Baptism is a sacred expression of faith, a faith that unites you to Christ and his people, a particular people in a particular church where you can be nurtured and held accountable as the New Testament teaches. So what this doesn't mean is that if you're baptized here at Gateway, you can never leave. Um, <laughs> it is instead a commitment to this local church family at Gateway while you and we remain here, okay? But it does mean that we are going to have some questions um, regarding baptizing you if you have no intention of being part of this church family. It's not to say that we don't think you're saved, although if you don't have an intention of being part of any church family, then we're going to have some kind of questions around the belief bit as well. But if what we are going to be doing is encouraging you to get baptized into the local church family that you want to belong to or that you intend to belong to, okay? I'm not going to say too much more on this one because hopefully it's clear. Um, so for those wanting to get baptized, we're looking for an understanding of the gospel, a clear, credible profession of faith, the belief one. And we're also looking for an understanding that baptism is the doorway to the church, right? And, it, and to this local embodiment of the church, Gateway in particular. And therefore, we're also looking for a commitment to belong to those who form part of this church family while you remain here. And the final B that we believe we should be looking for in those wanting to get baptized is behavior. Now, let me first of all explain what I don't mean by this, which is that we are not looking for perfection. We're not even looking for mature disciples. Right? Baptism is part of the initiation process, part of the entry point to the church. It is part of the beginning of a life of discipleship. So by its very nature, it, it uh, invites those and attracts those who are new believers. So let me explain what I do mean. Now, the Bible teaches, we believe, that faith is not merely affirming a set of statements about what you believe. Okay, let's look at what James says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no works? Can such faith save them? 
Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, keep well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Um, and I read this Tim Keller, Tim Keller quote out um, a few months ago when I preached on caring for the poor. He says that true faith, he's referencing this James verse, true faith always produces a changed life. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. As I said at the beginning, being a disciple and apprentice of Jesus is learning to be with Jesus, become like him, and do the things he did. It is not just assenting to some theological doctrines. It is not just being part of church. It is a lifelong journey of learning to give the whole of your life, your time, your money, your energy, your passions to loving God and to loving others. It changes everything, not just what you do on a Sunday morning. So not only are we looking for belief and belonging, but we are also looking for an understanding that this is not simply saying you believe in something. Right, but this is something that is going to radically transform your life. We're looking for a commitment, basically, to apprentice under Jesus for the rest of your life. And again, to be clear, we're not looking for everybody to have everything sorted already. We're not looking for perfection, for maturity. We are looking for understanding. Not trying to raise the bar for those wanting to get baptized. You have to jump a little bit higher now. Right, the bar's in the same place it's always been. Um, what we want to do instead is try and set people up with good foundations for a life of discipleship at the entry point. So he talks about baptism. Our first B, and then the three things that we're looking for in those wanting to get baptized. Belief, belonging, behavior. So now let me just finish by briefly, well, maybe not so briefly, I don't know, by talking to you about how we're going to do this at Gateway going forwards. Um, and it is nothing revolutionary, just to be clear, by any stretch of the imagination. But hopefully it just brings some clarity for us as a church family. So if you can imagine a scale, right, and on the left you have one extreme, and on the right you have another extreme. And the extreme on the left is that you don't even need an understanding of the gospel. Uh, you don't need be belief to be baptized. You just need a desire to get baptized, which is genuinely a position I read as we were looking at this as an eldership team. Um, so we're not looking for belief, belonging, or behavior. We're just looking for a desire to get baptized, and we'll figure out the rest as we go. So that's one extreme on the left. And then imagine the other extreme on the right, which I'm going to use an example that the early church called the catechumenate. Um, and bear with me for a minute while I explain this. It was basically a rigorous training program uh, to form believers and prepare them for baptism. So a new convert would be brought to the church to see if they were ready to join the training program, which would involve looking at uh, their living situation, whether they were living with a husband or a wife or somebody else. It would look at their job and whether their job was fitting for a Christian to be involved in or not. Um, and then if they were accepted... Um, so high standards even just to get in. But if they were accepted, then however long the training went on, the new convert would receive teaching from the church. Not just in theology, but in behavior and in conduct, in how to live as a Christian. 
And then when the time for your baptism came, normally on Easter Sunday, you would go down from the sanctuary, from the worship room, uh, into an outer chamber. You would face west. Where's west? (laughs) You'd stretch out your hands like Moses did, and you would renounce uh, the devil and all of his works. And then you would turn, and you would face east, and you would uh, affirm your belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in one baptism. And then having done this, you would go down into the inner chamber, where you were to take off all of your clothes. Yes, people were baptized completely naked. Um, But the removal of your clothes symbolized the removal of the old humanity, the removal of your shame. And you were exercised by the church leaders. One more time, there'd been a whole process of it. Uh, Being anointed with exercised oil, representing the casting out of any powers of darkness in your life. You would approach the baptistry, where the priest would pray over the waters. And then you would be plunged into the waters after making one more uh, confession of faith, plunged into the waters, not once, but three times, aligning yourself with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the three days of Jesus' death. And then coming out of the water, you'd be anointed with oil again on your head, your ears, your nose, and your chest, symbolizing that you are now a disciple of Jesus, but also symbolizing the removal of shame, ears to hear, the fragrance of Christ, and the breastplate of righteousness. You were then given new white robes, and you were led out back into the worship sanctuary like this, where church members would welcome you with the kiss of peace. You would sing a hymn together, and then you would have your very first communion. Okay, A communion which consisted not only of bread and wine, like we shared this morning, but also that consisted of milk and honey, right? symbolizing the Uh, the promised land, entry into the promised land, and the hope of the kingdom to come. Okay, so one extreme on the left, that was a lot, that's a, yeah, I know. One extreme on the left, you don't even have to believe, okay? If you want to get baptized, we'll baptize you, we'll figure it out on the way. The other extreme is like all of that. Um, We recognize that we as a church have probably been closer to this end than actually having on reflection and reflected about it than we would like. Okay, now, so what we want to do is not move all the way over there and start baptizing everybody naked, um, <laughs> but just move very slightly over to the right and try and set up some of those good foundations and some of that understanding of what baptism is and what the Christian life is. As you'll be able to read in your Bibles, um, Most, many of the baptism stories in the New Testament happened immediately after people were saved or pretty quickly thereafter, right? There are a few where where we're not given a kind of time frame. We're just told that they were baptized. But most of them appeared to be quite quick, if not immediate. But what's fascinating is that that catechumenate training program that I um, talked about happened in less, was developed in less than 100 years after the Apostle Paul Died. So within, what, two to three generations in their day, maybe one to two generations in our day, it had gone from baptizing people immediately to sometimes up to a three-year wait between becoming a Christian and getting baptized. It was a huge shift in a pretty short period of time. And in fact, Tertullian, who's one of the early church fathers, he says, baptism is not rashly to be administered. If any understand the weighty importance of baptism, 
They will fear its delay more than they fear it, it coming. No, I'm not saying I agree with that. But um, clearly, as I said, what we're not going to do is delay for three years, introduce a rigorous training program, and baptise everybody naked, as I said. But what we are going to do, very simply, is reintroduce some baptism prep sessions. Uh, as I said, it's not revolutionary. Um, that everybody who's wanting to get baptised will have to go through, okay? Um, and after these two sessions, uh, they'll be followed where one of us as an elder will meet one-to-one with each person just for a further discussion. And in those prep sessions, we're going to be talking more about those four Bs, okay? What baptism is and the three things that we are looking for in those wanting to get baptised. And in the one-to-one follow-up, we're going to be doing the same thing, just asking more questions, kind of personal around those four Bs. So, the baptism preparation sessions are going to be around two months or a bit less before each baptism service. So, the first two will take place next January on the 14th and the 21st of Jan. We will take everybody out of, who's interested, everybody out of the main meeting um, and we will do it during on a Sunday morning so we're not adding extra stuff into your diaries. And then we will follow up between that point and the baptism service, which is going to be on Easter Sunday, with a one-to-one discussion with one of the elders. If you're under 18, we will also want to meet with your parents as well. Um, so if you would like to get baptised on Easter Sunday, you will need to come to these two baptism prep sessions. And if you're not able to come to both, we will ask you to delay your baptism until the next one, which will be in November with sessions in September, October time. Um, and I do have a bunch of reasons of why we feel more comfortable of slightly delaying um, a baptism. Um, but I'm running out of time, so you feel free to come and ask me if you're interested. Um, as I said, it's not anything revolutionary, right? Plenty of churches all around the world today require baptism prep sessions before somebody is baptised. Um, and we've done something similar before here. But we uh, just wanted to give a bit of context for what we believe and why we've landed where we have landed. Um, so I just want to finish, really, by encouraging you. If you have not yet been baptised, but you are a follower of Jesus, please let us know. <laughs> and please come along to those baptism prep sessions in January. It is, it's not just something, as uh, Andrew Wilson said in that quote, it's not just something Christians ought to get around to at some point. It is something that is essential to the Christian life. Or if you've been baptised as an infant, as a baby, and what I've said this, this morning has kind of made you want to talk through some of that with us. Please, again, please do come and speak to us. If you have been baptised already, which I imagine is probably a good majority of the room, I hope I've not been too boring. Um, <laughs> I hope it's been helpful just in clarifying some of our understanding. And I hope at the very least that you feel encouraged, that you could go away feeling encouraged that your baptism is not just some empty symbol that there is power in what you've done because the Spirit's been at work in it. You know, I was just talking to Matt uh, earlier today about baptism, and um, he kind of said one of the things that um, is helpful to do when you're doubting your faith is to remember, I've been baptised. I've been baptised. God has done something in me as I responded to him in faith. 
Um, so can I just invite you to stand? I'm just going to pray to finish. And then parents, if you can go and collect your kids after that. Father, I thank you that you so loved the world that you sent your only son. God, we thank you that we get to celebrate that over these coming weeks in Christmas. Get to celebrate the fact that you came. The God who created all things, who is over all things, you came. You condescended yourself to be with us, to become like us, to be made to be born like us. We thank you for that, knowing that you were going to suffer and die. You came anyway. And God, I thank you that we don't have to earn your love. It is a free gift of grace. We don't have to earn our salvation. We've been saved by grace through faith, as Colin read out earlier. It's a gift. And God, for each one of us here this morning who is considering baptism... I just pray, would you speak to them by your spirit? God, would you encourage those who need to be encouraged? Would you strengthen those who feel afraid? God, would you challenge those who need a rocket? Um, we pray, God, would you speak by your spirit? God, and would you encourage those who have not yet been baptized to enter those waters? God, and for each of us here who have been baptized, I pray you would just bring affirmation and encouragement and strengthening in our, in our hearts this morning as we leave this place, knowing that we, have, we are in you, we've been buried with you, died with you, and raised to resurrection life with you, Lord Jesus. Father, I just pray that you would forgive us as a leadership team, our fumblings and mistakes. God, I pray that you would help us to, um, to lead this family well, as best we are able. God, I pray that for us as a church, God, that we would be in this season better and better, God, at loving one another, at encouraging one another, at challenging one another, strengthening one another, sharpening one another. God, I pray, would you bless us this morning? Would you bless my brothers and sisters here this morning? I pray, God, may you, may you be glorified in us as we go from this place. We worship you and we love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.